Let's pray as we stand. Father, we do thank you for this special time of gathering as a family around the table of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way your Spirit is moving amongst us. And I pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Holy Scripture to be written through the hands of human beings will remind us that this Scripture is God-breathed. It's your breath to us, Lord. It's inspired by you. It's your word to us. It's a love letter from heaven. And speak to us through it, Father, in all the profound mysteries that it contains. Change us and transform us that we too might become agents of transformation. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Please take a seat. Um, Some scripture was handed to me. I feel probably it's appropriate to read that scripture from Revelation chapter 7 at the end, just for the brother who passed it on. Um, But for now, we're going to concentrate on the scripture that's set before us for this message today. So if you'd like to turn to your Bibles, just a short uh, few verses of scripture, and we'll cover more scripture as we get into it, but we'll keep it brief at this stage. So just one verse from Isaiah, that's chapter 7 and verse 14, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and then as we might uh, describe it, we'll look at this, the prophetic fulfillment of that scripture in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. So Isaiah seven fourteen and Matthew 1, 22 to 25. So here is a, a very off-read verse of scripture, particularly at this season of the year, Isaiah seven fourteen, where it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Then we go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, where we find this. All this took place to fulfill what the prophet, what the Lord has spoken through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so we're going to begin a very short series of messages, just two messages in Advent, this Advent Sunday and next Advent Sunday, about prophetic promises, if you want. And this week we're looking at the prophetic promises of the virgin birth. Or if I can put it more accurately, for those of you who've got a knowledge of biology or medicine, actually the virgin conception. The virgin birth, the virgin conception, Mary being with child. And we're going to look at that as a a set of prophetic promises. But before we get there, I wonder what you make of the Advent season. I I absolutely love the Advent season. I get excited. I mean, for some people, Christmas is difficult. That's why on our invitations, one of the services on the Thursday the 21st, which is the longest night of the year, is called the longest night service. We'll gather at 7.30 that night because for some people, Christmas is tough for them. It reminds them of sad times and maybe the loss of a loved one, or maybe they feel lonely. So for the longest night service, we want to say to someone, we still care about you, even if you're struggling to celebrate Christmas. But I've got to be honest, for me, Christmas is a time of tremendous joy. It's undoubtedly my busiest time of the year as a pastor, but it's still a time that I love. The lighting of that first candle gets me excited with the anticipation of Advent. How about you? You like the Advent season? I do. And I would say through my life as a guy that there have been 
three seasons, maybe four seasons that are kind of linked with this and linked with Christmas. There was a season when I was a young boy that I believed in Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Then there was a second season where I ceased to believe in Santa Claus. Then there was a third season where I became Santa Claus, tiptoeing into the kids' rooms at night with a sack full of toys and hoping that I didn't get seen. And if they did wake up, dropping them quickly and saying, just coming to see that you're all right. And hoping they didn't see the big sack of toys. And then I'm in the fourth season now where I look like Santa Claus, okay? So I don't know what Advent is like for you, but for me, it's that Christmas is coming. It's a time of anticipation. It comes from Latin, advene, to be at or near the coming. Advene from two different Latin terms to be at or near, and there's this wonderful time of anticipation. And it's a big theological word that we link with it, and I believe in unpacking big theological terms, not ignoring them. Christmas is about what theologians call the incarnation. In John's Gospel, which we're not reading from today, John captures this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And he goes on to say that Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He tabernacled, he spent a while, he made a tent almost, a temporary dwelling amongst us. God came to earth, the incarnation. Jesus, God's Son and God's sign to the world, stepped onto planet earth with this amazing rescue plan. So this big theological word is so important to us because it's the miracle at the center of Christmas. It's a prophetic promise of a virgin who will give birth to a child fulfilled in Mary, as we've heard. And I want to look at it in three ways. First of all, a miraculous sign to Mary. Secondly, a miraculous sign to Joseph. And thirdly, a miraculous and prophetic sign to the whole world. That's what Advent is about, anticipating the coming of Christ. That's what this season is all about. So first of all, we look at this miraculous sign to Mary. But I want to say at the outset that Mary is herself a sign, as we'll see. It's not just the baby that she brings into the world. The fact that she was a virgin when she conceives this baby is itself uh, the fulfillment of a prophetic promise, and it's a miraculous sign. And Mary had had already a visit from an angel to reassure her that she was going to bring God's Son into the world. A very, very special baby. Amazing. But let me tell you how weird in the providence of God things can be for you as a pastor. You've got this beautiful picture behind me, this image of this, of this fetus, this, this embryo, this child in the womb. It's a beautiful image captured through the miracle of science and technology. Uh, and as I was anticipating speaking on this message in the nine o'clock service this morning, my phone was on silent but vibrate because I was looking forward to finding out whether, whether the Gary family would actually be with us. Because as a pastor, I wanted to be sensitive and I wanted to know whether they w- they're with us. I haven't had the text that I was waiting for. I don't see you around, Andrew and Joanne, but pray for them. Pray for them. So I was waiting for that, and then actually it went off, and it was just at the end of the prayer time, so I kind of sneaked out because I realized it wasn't from the Gary family. It was a phone call from my daughter in Melbourne, who at that moment was just going into labor. How about that? So Jodie might still be in labor right now, 
If you can spare a prayer in the middle of a sermon, if what I'm saying is boring, send up a prayer for my daughter Jodie in Melbourne that she might bring uh, the fourth of our grandchildren in that family into the world. Please God that she will. But this very special baby was to be born of a virgin. So when we look at this promised sign, the promised sign comes in Isaiah 7 and verse 14. And you remember well what it says. Some of you have heard it over and over again, particularly at this time of year. Therefore the Lord himself, here it is, will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and you'll give birth to a son and you'll call him Emmanuel. And it's only when we go to Matthew's Gospel and we read uh, in Matthew's Gospel that we see there's a prophetic fulfillment of this. And we'll get there. Because this is a prophetic sign, okay? It is a prophetic sign. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, we're told all this took place. Mary's conception of a baby, which absolutely staggered Joseph, as we'll see, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Now, that is the prophet Isaiah. Because verse 23 says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Wow. Now, before we get back into Isaiah 7.14, let's just go to Luke's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, just go to Luke's Gospel. I'm going to read just a few verses of Luke chapter 2. And while you're turning to Luke chapter 2, this is a story of a very venerable, a very aged, a very holy, a very prayerful, a prophetic elderly man called Simeon. And it tells a story of just days, a matter of days, just over a week after the birth of Jesus, that he is presented at the temple. And he's presented at the temple according to the Jewish tradition. And Simeon has been praying for years because he has a prophetic promise over his life that God has given him that he's going to see the salvation of the world. He's going to see God's salvation, literally. So Simeon comes up to Mary and Joseph. He recognizes by the leading of the Holy Spirit this child. He takes this child into his arms and listen to what he says. I'll read from verse 29, actually, of Luke 2. Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. He knows that he's been expecting this all his life. He's been waiting for this moment, and now it's almost as if his life has reached this pinnacle, this kairos moment, this moment full of, uh, of God's intention. And the Anglicans, and if you've got any background in the Church of England, you'll know, this is the nunc dimittis. It's a special prayer in Anglican liturgy. It, it comes from the Latin, which means, Lord, dismiss, or Lord, you now dismiss. And Simeon says, you can dismiss me now, Lord, you can call me home. My life's fulfilled. Because I have seen this, now dismiss your servant in peace. And he goes on to say, verse 30 of Luke 2, For my eyes have seen your salvation in this little child. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Because he goes on to say, verse 32, A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Wow. Now, what we need to do here is go back to Isaiah, but not to just that one verse, verse 14 in chapter 7. We need to go to chapter 9, because what Simeon is doing here as he holds Jesus in his arms is in his mind's eye, he's going back to Isaiah chapter 9, and he's probably got these verses in Isaiah, in the Jewish scriptures, on his heart. Listen to Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. Nevertheless, 
There'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled himself. He humbled, sorry, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, this is the Galilee of the Gentiles where Jesus spent a lot of his ministry time. This is by the way of the sea, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, and along the Jordan, the Jordan River, and, and the Sea of Galilee as well. So this is the area where Jesus ministered. And what Simeon is thinking of here is this light in the darkness, even to the Galilee of the Gentiles, that the people are going to see a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light's going to dawn upon them. And Simeon sees that scripture from hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, fulfilled in this baby called Jesus that Joseph and Mary bring to the temple. So this miraculous sign to Mary becomes this miraculous prophetic sign to Simeon, and he prophesies over them. But if you just go back for a moment to Luke chapter 2, there's, there's a great sadness there as well for Mary and Joseph. There's mystery, awe, and wonder, because in verse 33 it tells us of Luke 2, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said by Simeon about him, about Jesus. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them, and then he said to Mary, Jesus' mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and listen to this folks, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then this must have chilled Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. See, like all Jews awaiting the Messiah, they're expecting someone on a war horse to drive the Roman oppressors out of what we now call the Holy Land. And Mary was going to stand at the foot of a cross where she saw her wonderful son, also her Lord and Saviour and Master. If she brought into the world in the normal way, she's going to see him hanging there, dying in agony as his lifeblood literally poured out. She, with some other women and John, were close to that cross. And at that moment, she must have remembered Simeon's prophetic words, a sword will pierce your soul too. And nevertheless, Simeon knew that this was the promised sign, the prophetic sign. He knew that because of those verses in Isaiah, not only chapter 7, 14, but 9, 1 and 2 about the Galilee of the Gentiles and the people in the darkness seeing a great light. He probably never heard Jesus say when he was fully grown, almost certainly Simeon didn't. He would have been dead by then. But Jesus in John 8, verse 12 says, I'm the light of the world. He was the light that was coming, a prophetic fulfillment and a sign that Isaiah had promised all those years ago. Now, for those of you who know your Bible well and read the commentaries and look at scholarship, you will know that there's something a little bit unusual, and we should never take one verse out of context. We should always read it in context. And there are some that have said, no, that, no this isn't a prophecy about Jesus. Can't be. Because if you just read on, it says in verse, uh, in verse 15, this child that will come, this son that will come, who's given the name Emmanuel, which we now know means God with us, he will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, 
That's directly Isaiah speaking to Ahaz, a rebellious king, who is terrified of the king of Israel, Jew against Jew, but also the king of Aram, or Syria as we now know it, of this threat from the north, from Syria and Israel, uniting and coming down. And that's because the judgment of God is upon the people of Judea. Why? Because Ahaz has worshipped other gods and led people into worshipping other gods. And when in Isaiah chapter 7, if you're still there and you've got a finger in there, when Isaiah seeks to bring hope from God, we get this pious, hypocritical response from Ahaz. In verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign. There it is. Whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So he piously in his rebellion, says, I'm not going to put the Lord to to the test, but really his heart's far from God. He don't ask God. He doesn't want to ask God. He doesn't even trust in God. He almost has no faith in God. He's worshipped false gods. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will give birth to a son. She'll be with child, give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. So who is this? Well, it could have been a young handmaiden, a young virgin in Ahaz's harem of wives that he's not yet laid with, as a husband lays with a wife. And so the virgin is going to give birth to a child. That's possible. Could have even been one of Isaiah's own sons to come. But even if that is true, this happens with prophecy sometimes, there's a partial fulfillment which only points to a future fulfillment. There's a foreshadowing of the bright light to shine of God's revelation in the future. There's a type here of the true Messiah to come. Are you with me? And that's what I think is happening here, and that's what most scholars that trust the authority of Scripture would be saying. The word here in the Hebrew for virgin is alma, in the five or six times it's used in the Old Testament, pretty much always points to a virgin, not just a young handmaiden. So we're talking about something miraculous. Because I used to teach sex ed and biology, and let me tell you, virgins don't have babies. Okay? Although it's possible now. It's possible now, medically. There's no way it was possible then. When the 70 Jewish scholars wanted to translate the Old Testament scriptures, including Isaiah, into Greek so that the world could have their scriptures, in the Septuagint by the 70 scholars, they used the word for Isaiah 7.14, for Alma in the Hebrew, they used the word Parthenos, which only ever in Greek means virgin. This is a miracle. Now, I want to break into this deep theology. Just do me a favor. Look, look at the person either side of you. Have a good look at them. They are intelligent handsome or beautiful, depending on their gender. They are a work of creative genius by the creator of the universe. Do you agree? Be careful what you say at this moment. Do you agree? God doesn't make junk, so the people in the balcony and the people down here are a masterpiece. Now, I want to give you a little bit of medical background. Some of you heard me speak on this before. Everybody you just looked at started life as one cell. Any medics around, any uh, biologists around want to tell me what the name of that first cell of a human being is called? Zygote. Where did that come from? Zygote. Bless you. Thank you. Good man. GP. A zygote. 
Now, we could sing a little song. Look, look at them again, because they started life as one cell, and they turned into a ball of cells, then they became the magnificent specimen they now are. Have a good look at them. And you might want to sing this little song. You must have been a beautiful zygote for baby. Look at you now. Ba-bum-bum. Bum. Okay? Because they turned from one cell into this masterpiece of God's workmanship. And therefore, what was placed in the womb of Mary by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as a prophetic sign, as a fulfillment of a prophecy, as an absolute miracle, was the very first human cell of the one who was the Word, who'd always existed. The one who'd always been with God. The one who was God. The one who made his dwelling amongst us. The one who came in the flesh. Jesus Christ. The Word incarnate. God incarnate. Emmanuel, God with us. Are you with me? Doesn't this doctrine excite you? Isn't it amazing? A miraculous sign to Mary. But we need to move on. Because Joseph needed a miraculous sign too. And the miraculous sign that Joseph needed is because it's not good if you are a Jewish male and you are betrothed to your, as we would say, fiancé, because that was almost like being married already. You never came together, just as Matthew's text says, that they didn't come together, they didn't live together. They certainly didn't have sexual relations. They didn't make love. There's no way that's going to happen. There's going to be a week of celebrations and a wonderful wedding feast and a wonderful ceremony before they literally come together to live as husband and wife. But the betrothal was almost like a marriage. So actually, Matthew even uses the word that Joseph, when he found out Mary was pregnant, was minded to divorce her quietly because he loved her, because he respected her, because he didn't want her to be ashamed. And he didn't want the shame on his family. So we see the anguish of Joseph, but we see an angel reassures Joseph. We see both his anguish, but we see the reassurance. Listen to his anguish first in Matthew 1, 18 to 19. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Please notice that, through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, don't think this was a fit of anger. He must have been in anguish, but because he's a righteous man, Joseph does the right thing. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He was in mind to divorce her quietly. This is a good man. Every reason to doubt. But an angel appears. The very next verse 20, after he'd considered this, he'd considered it, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived, the virgin conception, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Absolutely wonderful, absolutely amazing. The anguish of Joseph leads to the reassurance of the angel, and Joseph does the right thing. I just want to say something that's really sad. And I want to read from this month's Christianity magazine. Um, something is really sad. In, in modern days, Joseph could have come up with another solution. Or Mary could have come up with another solution. It's called abortion. And before I go any further, I have held in my arms and cried with someone 
at the guilt and shame they felt having aborted a child. And I thank God that in Plymouth we have a pregnancy crisis advisory centre and Christian people lovingly working in it to go alongside people. I've got the phone number if anyone here needs it, if anyone here needs counselling, if anyone here needs praying with, if anyone here just needs loving because you've been through that trauma, you were in a time where you made that call, then this word isn't to beat you up. It's to bring love and compassion. But in this magazine, I read about the fact that we have had in the autumn just gone the 50th anniversary of the 1967 Abortion Act. Dave Borlase from Intercessors for Britain is quoted as saying, every day in England and Wales, over 500 of the most vulnerable and helpless have their lives ended. Pro-life campaigners have stated that 8.7 million lives have been lost since 1967. Christian Concern helped to organise a statement on that 50th anniversary. On the 27th of October, they said that one in three women abort their babies. The Christian charity Care have pledged to redouble our efforts to prevent further liberalisation of abortion. Now, the issues are complex, I know that. But what I want to suggest is that every child is precious and according to the Christian understanding I have, and I know it's oversimplistic to leave it at this, but life starts much earlier than abortion allows the termination of a child. And on a day when I had not known that my own daughter would go into labour, my spirit is quickened. Joseph didn't go that way. Joseph was reassured by this angel because he knew that this child that was going to come, he was going to give a special name to, was going to be a miraculous and a prophetic sign to the whole world. And that's what I want to move to now, this fact that this child was going to be a miraculous sign not only to Mary and to Joseph, but a miraculous and prophetic sign to the whole world. The sign of Mary's son, a human messiah. And the sign of God's Son, God the Son. So, if we read Matthew 1 and verse 21, we read that Joseph is reassured by this angel that she, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then when we look at the sign of God's Son, God the Son, not just a a human Messiah, but the very Son of God. We read Matthew 1 and verse 23. We see that Joseph is told this, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. And he is to give the name Jesus to the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, by definition, Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. He's God with us. And we can tell that clearly because if you just go a little bit further on into Matthew 2, and I I can't get into the story of the wise men, the three magi, or however many of them there were. We assume there are three because they bring three gifts. They speak of royalty and, and speak of prophecy and speak of sacrifice. But what I can tell you is Matthew 2 and verse 11, they do something, even as Gentiles, that is very, very unusual. In verse 11 it says, On coming to the house where they saw the child with his mother Mary, this is Jesus, they bowed down and they worshipped him. 
Just in the same way that doubting Thomas so called, when he sees the resurrected Christ, he declares, my Lord and my God. Wow. And just as Paul writes to Christians in Rome, if you look at Romans chapter 1 and verses 2 to 4, Paul is going to be beheaded as a Roman citizen. They're not allowed to crucify him. Eventually, he will be uh, lay down his life as a sacrifice and a martyr by beheading. He writes to Christians in Rome facing persecution, death by crucifixion, or being fed to the lions, or slaughtered in the arena. He says to strengthen them in the very beginning of his letter, Romans 1 verse 2, he speaks about the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who was to his human nature, was a descendant of David. You see, Mary and and Joseph are both of the line of David. Jesus is the line of David, just as Ahaz was, who received that word from Isaiah. And who through the spirit of holiness, Paul says about Jesus, was declared with power to be the Son of God by resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. Can I suggest to you all, as we look at the sign of Mary's Son, this human Messiah, the sign of God's Son, God the Son, that the most important three words for us this Christmas are God with us. Can we say that together? The most important three words for us to remember this Christmas, summed up in one Hebrew word, Emmanuel, but it means God with us. One more time, God with us. Some of you are facing sickness yourself. Some of you are facing relational problems and challenges. Some of you have got children or grandchildren that you're concerned about. Some of you have financial pressures and you don't know how you're going to get on in the new year. Some of you have got career challenges. I just want to remind you, let's say it together again, that God with us. God is with us. God is with us. God came in Jesus Christ. But you know, we can't just leave God with us. So as we move to an end, I I want to give you the the most simple of responses today. It's a question, really. And the question is this, will we be a prophetic sign this Christmas? You see, Jesus was a prophetic sign to his mother Mary. And Mary was a prophetic sign to the world, the virgin who was with child. Joseph needed a a sign from God. He got it from the angel. and, And he knew that his son, Jesus... Emmanuel, God with us, was going to be a prophetic sign to the world. And Jesus has become exactly that. There are millions upon millions of people following Jesus today. The church is exploding in growth in what we call the two-thirds world. In Islamic nations, people are coming to faith in Christ in huge numbers. Jews are turning to accept Jesus as their Messiah. All over the world, people are turning to Jesus. So don't be discouraged by the UK and the West in general, which is in dreadful decline along with Europe. But I want to ask, will we be a prophetic sign this Christmas? How do you mean, Clive? Well, the light of the world lives in you. And the light of the world this Advent season says, you and me, we are the light of the world. That's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. So how can we be a prophetic sign this Christmas? Well, we can, be, we can be incarnational. What does that mean? Well, we're not Jesus. No, of course we're not. But he lives in us. 
So when we incarnate him into the world, when we draw alongside people with love, when we pray for people like the Gary family, when we give an invitation, when we are invitational, we are being incarnational. And there are just the right services for some of your friends there. When you live fruitfully on your front lines, you are being incarnational. Let me give you some examples. I just want to honour anyone that was involved in Messy Church yesterday. Because in Messy Church yesterday, a huge team of volunteers set out tables and decorated them beautifully and put up lights. They did crafts with children and their parents. They cooked food and spent hours preparing it. They washed dishes afterwards. They served on tables. This church was being utterly incarnational from people in many cases never come to church. But, but Dawn and Mike Getley put on a service to end all services in a sense as they did a nativity where the children came dressed up and they got involved. Just like we'll do here at one of our special services. And as I went round and watched those people clearing tables and taking trays of cakes and mince pies and doing crafts with children, they were being truly incarnational. Do you know what I mean? Those street pastors who are out on the streets this Christmas with all the revelers, they'll be incarnational. Those amongst us who work for salt, those amongst us who, who serve along in Shekinah, those amongst us who work in our children's and young people's ministry, those amongst us who, who feed all those mouths through Gaffer's Gorge, who are involved in the incarnational ministry that we call the renewal ministry, the recovery ministry, all of you are being incarnational. Is that something to celebrate? Is that something to rejoice in? And listen, brothers and sisters, if you're not involved in serving in those ways, then just ask. But we can all do our bit by what we give to the ministry so that in this city, in this nation, and in the nations of the world, we can support those who are trying to be a prophetic sign to the world that Jesus is alive. But would you stand with me for a moment? Because no one's excluded in this. Stand with me just for a moment. Intentionally on the communion table is something slightly different today. Intentionally on the communion table are extra invitations. Why? Because I just thought it was part of who we are as a family. So I'm going to ask you, please, by all means, keep one of these beautiful invitations for your family or for yourself. But please, will you take some of these and pray over it and pray and ask God who you give it to and then give them with love and try and build a bridge and try and suggest which of these services might be good for people because some of us as Sheila organizes us tonight some of us at 5:30 we're going to meet in the hall downstairs we're going to go and prayer walk our streets we're going to sing carols we're going to knock on doors you know that there'll be this christmas like there was last christmas people running up the street trying to give us money and we'll say no thanks the gift is for you but we'd love you to come and worship with us. But maybe it's not about giving an invitation for you. Maybe it's just an office where you see someone looking sad. Draw alongside them. Be Jesus to them. Maybe it's the people on your street. Maybe it's the people in your own family. Maybe it's the people in your place of work or the place of study. But will we be a truly prophetic sign this Christmas? I hope we will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this church and thank you for this church family. 
Thank you for those who are amongst us today as visitors and guests. But Lord, if we are those who have responded to the miraculous sign given to Mary and the sign that she was, if we are those who responded to the miraculous sign given to Joseph who was to name his son Jesus, if we've responded to Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, Father, then please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we too may be a prophetic sign in this world. And Lord, whatever we're facing this Christmas or this Advent, whether we look forward to Christmas with anticipation or with dread, Father God, would you remind us of those three little words, God with us. Help us now, Lord, as we go out into this world and we ask it in the name of Jesus and we ask it for his glory. Amen.